after 20, we'll take a break. Um, I've got an idea for a brief series, probably no more than four to six weeks, and then we'll probably come back to Genesis. Um, but uh, nevertheless, Genesis 18, uh, I think what we'll do, instead of reading all the way through, we'll take it in sections. We'll start in verse 16, go all the way down to verse 21. But just a reminder, uh, chapter 18 opens up the narrative about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we're in that process here. Abraham is going to intercede on behalf of particularly Lot and his family. But in interceding for Lot, he's interceding for the city. So let's start in verse 16, go down to verse 21. Uh, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So what we have here is God's clear intentions to destroy Sodom. Here we have God showing up yet again in judgment. And, and I do believe there is a connection. We saw some last week. Uh, we are to see the judgment upon the cosmos, Genesis 3. Uh, which is an ongoing judgment. Then there's a judgment at the flood, which was a universal one. And then we saw a judgment upon um, the world itself through the dispersing of languages. Um, So you have the creation of nations after Babel. And now we have judgment upon specific cities. And and, and we'll say judgment upon Sodom, but we know there's about four or five cities involved. So uh, for the sake of simplicity, we'll we'll say Sodom or even Sodom and and Gomorrah. and so here God makes his intentions to, to destroy it. So remember how the, the narrative of Abraham goes. You, you open up with the covenantal promise of, line, uh, of, of lineage and land, and, and, and it's going to conclude with that, right? We'll get that in chapter 20 of the birth of Isaac. Um, but uh, in there, there's also another narrative, and that is the story of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, that God has blessed Abraham to the point that it forces Lot to move out of the land into Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, and, and judgment comes there. So here we see Abraham, uh, he is in a foreign pagan land. Lot is, is infected by that, uh, by moving to, to, to Sodom. But Abraham has to deal with this. Remember his story with, with the Egyptian pharaoh. Eventually he'll have to deal with Abimelech. Remember the battle of like nine armies, whatever it was. Um, so, so Abraham is in the desert, a literal desert, wilderness, but also a spiritual one. And God has called him uh, to be a Garden of Eden. And, and we spent some time on that, the Oaks of Mamre. There the altar is, and God has come down to be with Abraham here. So, so you have this paradise in the middle of fallen creation. So we start there in verse 16. Uh, the men set out from there. This, of course, is the two angels. So there's three people in the first 15 verses. That's Yahweh and two angels. We know they're angels because of chapter 19, verse 1. But remember, they are described as men. Hebrew words ish, the generic word for man. Uh, that, that's always used in, in Hebrew. Um, and so there is the sense they are embodied in some sense. I, I don't, can't explain all of that sort of stuff. When we think of angels, we think of chubby cherubim uh, sitting on clouds with a harp. And often we think that's what heaven is. And if that's what heaven is, then you may want to take a magazine with you. Um, or, you know, a magazine that teaches you how to play the harp, I guess. But, but in the Bible, angels don't have wings. 
uh, they, they, they come across as men. Um, and cherubim and seraphim have the wings. They have six wings, respectively. Uh, the seraphim are usually depicted as animals, uh, lions and eagles and whatnot, or have multiple animals associated with them, so they have multiple faces and all that. But angels are typically seen as, as men. Right um, now, they may be bright and glorious and all that sort of stuff, but typically they are seen as as men. Um, and they looked down towards Sodom. Now, this one of the things you'll find when reading the Bible: the better you know the geography, which I'm not very good with the geography of the Bible uh, or even the uh, topography of it. Uh, but the Bible often uses this language that ref- that clearly shows the writers familiar with the area. Um, this is certainly true in the Gospels, um, but we won't chase that rabbit, though I want to. Um, so if you take Hebron, Hebron is, I have it here, I, th- I thought I did, uh, a thousand meters above sea level. However many feet that is, okay? You have a thousand meters above sea level. A meter's three feet, right? So that'd be 3,000 feet in the air. I, even I can do that math. And I went to public school in Owen County. Sodom and Gomorrah is sea level because it's there at the Dead Sea. In fact, some will argue it's, it's at the bottom of the Dead Sea, right? And, Maybe we'll cross that bridge whenever we, we get there. So, so, so from Hebron's vantage point, 3,000 feet in the air, um, they look down onto Sodom. So that, that's, uh, you get this in the Bible. Uh, it'll say that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And the reason Jesus went up to Jerusalem is because Jerusalem is on top of a hill, right? You have to climb in order to get into uh, Jerusalem. The Bible does that a lot. It's, it's easy to miss unless you, you study the topo- topography, and I'm glad commentators have, because otherwise I wouldn't have noticed that. Uh, verse 17, uh, the 19, uh, the Lord said, this is Yahweh, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? It's interesting, isn't it? So, so he's been talking to Abraham, but now he does this thing where he talks to his partners in crime here. Right? Have you ever done that? It's annoying when people do it to you, right? Should... Should we tell them about the inside joke? Like, well, if you're not going to tell me, why did you even just tease me with the information, right? Should, should we tell her what we're going to do uh, for your father's birthday? Yeah, yeah, you should. Why, why are we having this conversation? It's annoying, isn't it? I get annoyed by it. I do it myself, right, especially with the kids, right? Um, but uh, um, that's what, it's, it's what, what, what God does, does here. Uh, verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Now here is a real contrast, isn't it? While God is blessing Abraham, he is condemning Sodom and Gomorrah. So in one case, what you have is one nation rising, though it's like a mustard seed. It doesn't look like it right now. Another nation is about to collapse. Uh, so, so, so God is the same God who blesses one will, will, will curse the other. Uh, uh, and then verse 19, uh, I have chosen him. There's that language of election we talked about last time. That he may command his children, his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, this bridges the uh, covenantal story of Abraham with the destruction of Sodom. It, it's, it's easy to see these as two very different stories, and, and rightly so, because they are very different stories. But they are related. God is showing Abraham uh, what the nation he is to become, what they are not to become. Uh, so as God makes him a mighty nation, don't be like Sodom. 
Right, so so uh, let's assume Mosaic authorship. I do think Moses is involved with the writing of, of, of the Pentateuch. Um, so let's just assume that. Um, what you have is a, is, a, is a people group. They're not a nation yet. They won't be a nation until Joshua clears the land. But you have a people group, and, and they know these stories. And they've probably known these stories for, for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So it would be hundreds of years, I guess. Uh, but, but they know these stories. And what are they to receive? They're, they're about to inherit the promised land. And the story comes and, and, and says, this is what the nation should look like. This is what the nation should not look like. And it's very clear black and white. And the story of Sodom is we've already known this wicked, and we're going to see how wicked it is, that depravity has, has defined the city. Israel, on the other hand, the nation of, of, of Abraham, they are to be very different. In fact, the words God uses there is... Um, Righteousness and justice. By the way, can I just add a little footnote there? You will never have a just society without a righteous society. The two are related theologically. It, 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 the word righteousness and, and, and justice are similar Greek words. But if justice means how, how society functions and how we treat each other, and righteousness is personally how I, I, my integrity, my holiness, you will never get justice without, without holiness. Never, never. No, no law can, can correct human nature. Uh, no cultural movement or revolution can fix these things. So you may think this is unfair or this should change. Until you change the heart of man, you will never have a just society. And what we're doing as a society, we talk a lot about justice, and we won't say anything about holiness. And we think we can bypass one in order to get to the other. And we wonder why we, in the name of justice, we're burning cities down, left and right. In the name of, of justice, we hate and divide one another. You will never get justice without righteousness. And, and God's saying that, no, your nation is to be different. This is a message to the people of Israel. They are called to be righteous and practice justice. When the prophets come, what is their criticism of the Israelites? They have forsaken righteousness by worshiping other gods. Therefore, they are an unjust people. This is really the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, in a nutshell. Um, what is the complaint that the Christians have against the religious elites in the New Testament? It's false righteousness, which leads to the greatest act of injustice, the crucifixion of the Son of God. It's right here from the very beginning in the founding of, 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 of Israel. Uh, so Sodom is a warning. Um, and then we, we get there, verse 20. The Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, obviously, God knows everything. But in the narrative, what, what we're doing is we are harking back to what we've already seen in Genesis. That's why the, the writer of, of Genesis is, is quite brilliant. He's always hyperlinking back to, to where the story has, has been. Notice, the, first of all, that word outcry. Can you think of when in Genesis thus far um, someone or something cried out to God in, in a moment of injustice? Yeah, Marcus. Abel's blood cried out from the ground. Yeah. Um, Don, i get your help. It's doing that thing. Yeah, Genesis 4, right? Um, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood 
cry, is crying out to me. Though dead, or Hebrews, he still speaks. There's your Hebrews 11 reference. Though dead, he, he still speaks. And, and in the context of Genesis 4, his blood is the one crying out. Thank you. Um, it's, it's crying out for justice. So God says, I hear the outcry of those who are suffering. And I'm going to go and, and investigate. In fact, he says, I will go down. Do you remember a story that we've already seen in Genesis where God has to go down to investigate wickedness? Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel. Yeah, you remember, because this is, this is, there's comedy here. Is Remember, God says that um, I have to come down and see it for myself. The point of the Tower of Babel is, is to, to reach the, the door of heaven. And, and God's like, what tower? I'll go down there and, and see for myself, right? So there's a little Lego thing. That ain't, that ain't that big of a deal, right? A little matchbox car is all that is. And, and so that, that's the funny, but he has to go down and, and deal with it. So, so we see uh, the story of Abel, right? There's, there's, there's violence in the city. It's a wicked city. And we see uh, idolatry and pride as, as, as well. And so you get the Tower of Babel and uh, the story of Cain all coming together. Now, this is not new news, right? We've known um, since chapter 13 that Sodom and Gomorrah are wicked. Uh, Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. Lot journeyed east. Now, remember in Genesis, to go east is to go away from God. So, so they leave the Garden of Eden. They go east. Cain then established a city by going farther east. Lot now is going east. And where does he find going east is he finds uh, wickedness. Abraham is an Ur, and he ends up going west to the promised land. Um, they separate from each other. Abram settled in Canaan, so on and so forth. Verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against Yahweh. And chapter 19 is going to illustrate that. We got a hint of it with the uh, battle that, remember, that Abraham doesn't take the spoils, uh, uh, but he, he gives it all to the, uh, to, to the Sodom's king. Um, so decades have passed since Lot moved, and the wickedness has only increased. Um, and that leads us to, to verse 22. I think this is a scene that, that we know pretty well, or at least we're familiar with it. Verse 22, so the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not... And not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death and the wicked, so the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Solemn fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So before we read the rest of it, where he really uh, you know, drops those numbers, a uh, couple of things here. One, uh, the angels leave, verse 22. Uh, and notice the language there. ESV says, Abraham still stood before the Lord. Uh, that's what your Bible says. I know this because I've looked at virtually every translation in English. Okay, uh, There is some, some manuscript issues here. Uh, so let's, let's look at these translations. Here's NIV. Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Okay? By the way, notice that's Yahweh. This is a theophany. Uh, uh, ESV, Abraham still stood before the Lord. King James, so you know this is what it actually said. Uh, Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Uh, New King James, same thing, because um, it's, it's just an updated to King James. NASB, uh, Abraham was still standing before uh, the Lord. I'm going somewhere. This Amplified, there's, did anyone ever read the Amplified 
at some point? Annie, you did? Uh, did you like it? It helps explain things. It clears them up. Yeah. It very, very clear. Amplify was one that it grew in popularity, and it, just, it sort of just died out over the years. It uh, hasn't maintained popularity. We, we, we would sell a few at, at the store. Uh, but it says Abraham remained standing uh, before the Lord. Here's the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is now the Christian Standard Bible, which means if you don't have the Christian Standard Bible, you're not really a Christian. Um, and poor Holman, right? He's not even didn't even put his name in the Bible anymore. The men turned from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Here's the message. Here you go, Don. Um, and the men set out for Sodom, but Abraham stood in God's path, blocking his way. Now, I think I know what Eugene Peterson's doing there. It's very weird, isn't it? Uh, I actually think Eugene Peterson is aware of some of the debates with this verse. And I don't think it's, it's the best way to, to render it, but I think he's aware of, of some of the, 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 the issues with this verse. And so he tries to bring it out. Notice here he's, he's putting the onus that Abraham is blocking God. I don't think it's in the text, but, but I, I, think he's, he's, I think he's aware of something. Uh, the Geneva Bible, which predates the King James. Uh, I know. I know. Um, you would be amazed at how many people. I, I did the, uh, the uh, English Bible thing that Steve Weaver did at the uh, um, Capitol a few years ago. And it's amazing how many people thought the English Bible started with the King James. I think it's not even close. And the amount of blood spilt to give us the King James. Let's not forget who King James's mother was, right? Um, and and so uh, the King James is a miraculous thing, and it's an awesome translation. Uh, it has I have issues with it, but it's it's a great translation. But it was not the first English at all. Uh, Geneva, it, it's called the Geneva Bible because uh, English Christians, Protestants, uh, uh, they they weren't Protestant for very long. Remember Henry VIII? Uh, he had a bunch of daughters. His his son rule but not very long had a bunch of daughters and uh they were a bit catholic and one bloody mary want to get rid of them all uh so they they flee to to geneva and and uh, john knox probably the most famous one although he's scottish um and while there uh, knox actually pastors an english-speaking church in french-speaking world uh because of all the refugees and they interact with john calvin all that they translate the bible in english and it's the, the geneva bible the problem with the Geneva Bible is it's not very kind to kings and queens. Can you guess why? And so they would use terms. Um, what's a bad term for a sovereign, like dictator? Is, is there, tyrant. I think tyrant might be the word they use in, in place of king. Uh, don't quote me on that. But uh, uh, So the Geneva Bible was very popular among the Puritans because they're pretty anti-king, right? Um, and so when King James came around, he was competing with a Bible that was already very popular. The kings don't like it because... But anyways, uh, Abraham stood, don't you miss the old spellings, yet before the Lord. Uh, the Bishop's Bible, even earlier, not a very good translation if, if my memory serves me right. Abraham is standing before the Lord. Tyndale, the, 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 the second English translation of the, of, of the Bible, uh, Wycliffe is the first uh, when you're reading your King James, you're really reading Tyndale. I had no intention to give you a lesson in the English Bible. Um, Abraham, again, stood before. So, so within like 50 years, uh, stood, went from 1-0 to 2, and now it has no E. If you can understand English and its etymology, you, you are smarter than most. Here's the Net Bible. Net is one of my favorite translations. It started as an online Bible. You can now get it in print. 
Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Notice that there's an important nuance there. Uh, he, he is still standing there. Um, let, me, let me give you this. This is a footnote on net. That's why I like the net Bible. It, it gives you these translation hints. An ancient Hebrew scribal tradition reads this. The Lord remained standing before Abraham. Before you read anything else, there's an old uh, uh, tradition. And you, we've got all these documents. Instead of Abraham standing before the Lord, it says the Lord stood before Abraham. Now, why would it say that? And the question is, which one is, 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 is the original? I think what you have in your English Bibles is the original. Um, the reason they, 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 they had it that the Lord stood before Abraham um, was they didn't like the idea of, of God waiting on Abraham. Right? They didn't like this, so they switched it, and they said that, that um, Yahweh stood before Abraham. But what's the problem with that? It gives the impression that Abraham is the sovereign and God is the one you know, who's under him. Right? And it's fascinating that this was a major debate among the Hebrews for a long time, which one was, was correct. So they were trying to fix one problem, and they created a very serious theological issue. There's one translation I found that hints at this. Uh, other than the message, uh, you know, uh, blocking his path. I don't think that that's a good way of rendering, but I, I think Eugene Peterson's on some. Uh, the New Living, which I read, first time I ever read through the Bible was New Living Translation. It's probably my version of the Amplified, I guess. Um, the Lord remained with Abraham. You, you see the, they're, they're, I think they're aware of, of this. Well, nonetheless, um, uh, verse 23 and on down, um, what you're ultimately getting here is perhaps no other passage in the Bible illustrates the power and the importance of intercession. There's plenty of examples of intercession in the Bible, um, but this is perhaps the, the best example. If, if you want to choose one, this might be, be the one. Right? Uh, Abraham understands that his nephew, and Lot, uh, that is Lot and his entire family, dwells in Sodom. And Abraham also knows he had already risked his life to save Sodom. And he didn't risk his life to save Lot, that is, just to have Lot die under the judgment of God. Um, and now he realizes that no army, no, no military strategy, no political campaigning can save Lot and his family from the judgment of God. In this sense, it's very similar to the story of um, Rahab. Apart from uh, intercession in some way, Rahab will die like all the other Jerichoites. And apart from intercession, Lot and his family will die with all the other uh, citizens of Sodom. And Abraham is well aware of this. You know, he's not going to be able to talk sense into the king. He's not going to be able to, to run some campaign. No, um, those human means aren't going to be good enough. This is divine judgment, and he must intercede. Now, Abraham appeals to God's character, which in intercession is not unique. Uh, Exodus 32 illustrates this quite well. Um, it says, uh, Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? 
and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, as Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit forever. The Lord relented. Your King James there, I believe, says repented. I do not like that at all. Uh, that, that is my biggest beef with King James is, is how it renders that word relent. Um, does it in Jonah and 1 Samuel too. Relented from the disaster that he had spoken. N- notice that, that Moses is appealing to God's character and God's plan. Your plan is to bless these people despite their shortcomings. He, he's not blessing Israel because they don't have them. He blesses them despite their shortcomings. Isn't that good news? <laughs> God is fully aware of what a knucklehead you are. Right, yeah, yeah, grace is still proves to be sufficient. You should see that as good news, and you should probably wipe the sweat off your brow whenever you discover, like, dodge that bullet, right? <laughs> you know. Um, and so uh, Moses appeals, like, I don't want the Egyptians to think God conquered the Egyptians just so He can destroy the Israelites. So too, Abraham is saying, look, 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 I want to appeal to your sense of justice and mercy because Lot is there. There are righteous people there. And you've been kind to him thus far, and you've blessed him. I'm asking you to to do it again. So in this prayer, what we get is the tension between God's justice and God's mercy. This is a tension that we still deal with today. Is it good and right and just for God to destroy Sodom? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I think it's very clear. Much of it would say it was God's justice that brought Nazi Germany down, right? That's a good thing. Justice is good. We all have a sense of justice. Remember, remember we said earlier that we want justice, not righteousness. What we end up with more is, is more injustice. But, but we at least have a natural sense of justice. At the same time, we know that justice without mercy is in, unjust. Mercy without justice is, 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 is inadequate as well. So Abraham is appealing to mercy. He understands that Solomon is evil and wicked and don't deserve mercy. But God is still a God of mercy. At least show kindness and mercy to the righteous. Um, And uh, by the way, the climax of justice and mercy finds its fulfillment in the cross, doesn't it? What should have God had done at the cross? He should have destroyed everyone and rescued Jesus. It's the mercy of God that held him there. But that mercy requires the justice of God in order to set me free for my sin and your sin. Their justice and mercy of God kiss. But this intercession demonstrates God's grace to his elect. Lot is numbered among the righteous despite his own failings. Right? Um, and Abraham appeals to his elect election promises. Uh, we saw that earlier that, that Abraham is God's chosen. That's the language of, of election. Um, and he appeals to this. Uh, the righteous should not be numbered among the wicked in final judgment. And as we'll see, Sodom is a picture of final judgment. Um, on your own time, we don't have time for it. Read Psalm 125 for that point. Let me give you some briefer uh, uh, 
Psalm 1, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Notice the separation there. The righteous are not numbered among um, the wicked. Proverbs 11, Be assured an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. It's almost like you know the, the writer here is reading Genesis 18. Again, you can read Psalm 125 for more. So Abraham is not praying that the wicked don't receive their just desserts. He's praying and interceding that God's wrath would not rest upon the righteous. And those redeemed by God, therefore, are always redeemed by God. Right? I, think, I think there's something here about assurance. In the Bible, again, Solomon is a picture of final judgment. Let me give you a few examples. In Isaiah 31, Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom when God overthrows them. That's a picture of judgment, a complete destruction. Uh, Jeremiah, when Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities were overthrown, says the Lord, no man shall dwell there, no man shall sojourn in it. Jeremiah is talking about Israel here. Um, Zephaniah, therefore as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits in the waste forever. Right, And the remnant of my people, notice the remnant will be spared from God's judgment. Uh, Matthew, uh, Jesus says, uh, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment. What is the day of judgment? It's the final judgment. Then it will be for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. So clearly Sodom is, is connected. It is a picture of final judgment. 2 Peter, there you go, Danny. Uh, if you go to 1 and 2 Peter for Sunday school. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. This is a picture of final judgment. Finally, uh, I think this is the last one, Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual morality, pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. But they didn't go under eternal fire, especially if, they're un- if, if the city is under the, the, the Dead Sea, right? It's gone underwater. But it is a picture of eternal fire, complete destruction. By the way, just a reminder of how similar 2 Peter 2 and Jude are. Uh, they, 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 they make the same reference to Sodom. So this intercession also, it, it raises a difficult question regarding collective guilt. We're not going to be able to answer all these questions. Should an entire community suffer because of the wickedness or even most, not just some of the wicked, but most of the people who are wicked um, of its members? collective guilt. Now, is, is this a, a pressing issue today? Yeah. How do we talk about race? Collective guilt. Now, that, that's because of, of avoid pause at all costs. There is a Marxist mentality where you, you do group think. And so, so you can't peel people off as individuals, but if you can put them into a group, it's easier to demonize more people rapidly, right? And, and so Marxism is, is, the, uh, is fi- economical, right? So you have the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, right? The haves and have-nots. And the have-nots have to uprise against the haves, and then we have peace and utopia. And as the 20th century showed, uh, communism always works out. Disaster the refugees from, from Cuba. Um, what cultural Marxism does, it takes that same uh, uh, collectivism, and instead of dealing with it with only economics, though you have that. So it's what you get is it's not fair that Bezos can go to space with all that money he has when you should give to the poor. 
I think he should give money to the poor, but it's not my responsibility. not my money, right? Who am I to, to, to live with such covetousness? Right, so you do get that, uh, but it's also we do it with race, gender, sexuality, um, uh, where you live in the country, right? If you're from the South, you're, 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 you're a boneheaded redneck who, who can't read uh, and you don't know what toothpaste is for. But if you're on the coast, you're wise and, and eloquent and, and you, you, you have all knowledge. Right, so 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 collectivism re- really really works in, in this sense. Well, so the question is, should should you hold everyone accountable uh, for 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 the few, for the many, for the most, whatever? How does that work? By the way, this is something that Southern Baptists have had to deal with. Am I somewhat responsible for the genesis of our convention? It was rooted in slavery, and there's just no way you can get around that, right? So so how do we think about these things? No, we, you can't answer all this today. Um, but we do need to remember that, first of all, the first readers of Genesis were Abraham's descendants who were in a covenantal agreement with God. And so what you get by the time of Jesus, they did read this story this way. Think about it. Why were the Pharisees and Sadducees such pain in the necks, such legalists? They believed that the unrighteousness of the few of the many, however they understood it, caused the Romans to um, be sovereign over them. So they, they thought if they could enforce righteousness among the people, God would deliver them. You see, see how collective guilt and collective righteousness works. The Essenes, which you don't meet in the New Testament directly unless John the Baptist is connected to them, which maybe he is, maybe he is, I don't know. Um, the Essenes were the Amish of the Jews. They left society waiting for God to just destroy uh, Jerusalem. This is where you get likely the Dead Sea Scrolls because they're out in the desert, hiding out in, in the caves. Um, but there's, there's also the, um, our, again, our, our cultural moment. Here's, here's what I want us to see. Do not underestimate the influence of the church and the power of a Christian's prayer. Right? Here, Abraham is interceding on behalf of a handful of people that an entire city might be spared. So that just, just one more day, let, let, let righteousness spread. Right? Don't underestimate the influence and the power of your prayers. So starting in verse uh, 26, going down to the end of the chapter, we, we get uh, God and Abraham going back and forth, right? Now, we need to see here, th- these are conditional statements. If then, if there are 50, then. If there are 40, then. Do not see these as promises. See them as scenarios, Okay. So you get in verse 26, yeah, verse 26 uh, is 50, and then it goes to 45, then 40, then 30, then 20, then 10. All right. um, now, some see this as Abraham uh, bartering with God. Have you ever been to the Middle East or maybe to uh, Africa or somewhere where this is how you do business? Uh, it's not fun. As an American, I don't like it. Um, and one of the things when, when I was in Africa... Um, if you went to go buy something at the market, uh, they would see that, that you were a white American. They assume you're a rich white American. Uh, they didn't see me as a poor college student who, you know, whose, whose wife was pregnant and, you know, two, three months pregnant. And we didn't have enough money for the two of us, let alone a third mouth, right? They didn't see it, see it that way. Um, and so uh, what they would do is, you know, here's, here's a set of earrings that shouldn't cost more than, you know, I don't know, 20 bucks. And they'd start at 200 
because you didn't know the language and you didn't know what the starting price was. That is all out in the open in America, right? For the most part, right? Um, I know I worked in retail that if you bought something for 20, we paid 10 plus shipping for that, for that item, right? We, we, we knew that. And so if, if, if you got it for 50% off, we were taking a loss, but it was cheaper for us to take that loss than for us to ship it back, right? You know, stuff like that, right? Retail. Um, well, at least it's all out in the open. It's not so over there. The missionary would not let us buy anything unless he's the one that did the bartering. And in their language, he would say, you're lying to me. You're lying to him. I'm not going to give you more than this amount because I know it's worth And it was fascinating. He's like my wife. My wife can, she can have a cart full of stuff. And no matter where she's at, she can be at Lobby Hobby. She can be at Walmarts. She could be at Kroger. She could be at TJ Maxx. And she can go through here and she can tell you it's going to be between this and this. And she's right every time. It is creepy. Like we have a budget for, for, for groceries. And when I do grocery shopping, I get up there and I'm thinking, I'll probably be all right. If not, we got to find the money somewhere, right? You know? And she's like within 10 cents, it seems like, right? At least she's within $5. It's incredible. And that's what this guy would do. He knew how much everything should, should cost. I don't think that is what is happening here. Uh, I think I can prove it to you. Verse 27, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. That, that is not one who sees, bartering sees the two people as equals. This is not two people seeing themselves as equals. Verse 31, something similar. Um, says, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found here. Um, and then verse 32, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. This is an act of humility. He is interceding. Now, there in verse 27, we read dust and ashes. Now, what does that remind you of? When you think in Genesis, we've seen where it mentions dust. I am but dust. It's a creation story, Genesis 2. Adam was, was created out of dust. And it's fascinating that the phrase dust and ashes appears in one other book. Does anyone have an idea what book it is? You know it once I tell you. Job. It's Job. Yeah, we all know that, don't we? You're like, oh yeah, I remember Job. It's, it's why he was uh, covered in ash. Right? That is mourning and loss. But uh, God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. Same thing in 42. Right? This is where he, he's speaking to God. God puts him on trial. Uh, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. All right, so so, so this, is, this is the language that the ancients used to, to say this is who I am in light of God. God is, God is above all things, uh, seated upon his throne. What am I? I am but dust. I am but of the earth. Adam and Adamah, am I using the right language? Hebrew? My Hebrew is not very good. I believe the word earth and man rhyme or they're connected or something um, for, for that reason. Um, so so um, we work our way down. Verse 32, um, we're down to the five, right? Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found here. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, Abraham stops at 10, and some ask, why, why didn't he go down to five? Well, why didn't he go down to one, right? <laughs> I mean, you, 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 it's, it's, don't, I, don't, I think we can go a bit too far with some of this. But Lot and his family number at least four people. I say at least, it's because there's, there's some debate as to how many people were in Lot's family. In chapter 19, verse 14, Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, 
Now, after Sodom, he has two virgin daughters. And remember, he offered them to the crowd outside. So there's two ways to reason this. One, he has other daughters who are married, or they were engaged to be married. You remember that, that Mary and Joseph were considered married, though they weren't married during, during her pregnancy. It's, it's a different way that, that, that they do things. Um, so, so figuring out how many are in the family is, is difficult. Four survive. So the reason that matters is, is even if you say, okay, why didn't you go down to five? It probably still wouldn't be enough, right? right? If, if, if it's just four of them and then two who aren't, who aren't yet part of the family, you still don't have five. Right? And let's not miss the point. If he has other daughters and sons-in-law, they don't survive, which would put them among the unrighteous. So, so you still can't get, get, get the number out there. Um, Nevertheless, um, but regardless, it, it doesn't matter. The point has already been made. Sodom has been completely wicked. Right? Um, I, growing up, and I think there's some, some truth to this, if, if God doesn't do something to the West, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. You've probably heard that statement before. I grew up with a lot of us rednecks saying that. And I think there's some truth to that, but there's more than 10 of the righteous still, right? And don't underestimate that. Pray. <laughs> Pray hard. Be faithful. But 10 also represents completion, right? That if, if you're not getting 10, then the entire city is, is gone. Okay, what I want to do in the time remains, uh, and we don't have much time remaining, but that's okay. I wasn't here Sunday, so I spared you. Um, and you, I haven't preached much this month, so you, maybe you'll have to get a little extra. What are some points of application that we can get out of this passage? We'll look at the story of Sodom more uh, detail next week, starting next week, Lord willing. Um, Three things. Number one, the God of blessing is also the God of cursing. I do think this is an, an important point. Uh, the same God that feasts with Abraham and blesses him with life and a nation is the same God that will come down to destroy people and nations. Same God. Same God. And it's striking to me that we want a God who will bless us. We're unwilling to accept a God who might curse us, who will judge us, who will condemn us. Well, That's his arrogance and it's hypocrisy. Um, because we don't want anyone who only blesses but doesn't condemn. Right. And God is both, and we see both in this passage. Secondly, um, intercession is a Christian's responsibility. You and I are called to intercede. Intercede on behalf of others, our neighbors, our family, our friends, um, strangers. We are called to intercede. If we spent more time interceding for those who despise us, um, we would understand more what Jesus means by loving your neighbors. Um, it's hard to hate someone you are praying for their well-being. It really is. Um, maybe not at first, <laughs> right? But, but it, it is hard. Um, 1 Timothy 2 is a great verse here. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. By the way, notice these terms. We're going to look at them. Uh, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving. Uh, as we'll see, these all need to be in, in your prayer life. We're really good at supplication. God, give me. God fix, God do, and we forget Thanksgiving. No wonder we, we think we're all victims and we're bitter people. Right? Um, bitter people never happy people, never free people. Uh, so Thanksgiving needs, needs to be part of it. Intercessions. Like, if it's all about God fix this in my life, what if we interceded for the well-being and the salvation of souls for other people? What if, what if that was the center of our prayers? 
Nevertheless, do these things for kings, unless, of course, unless, this is footnote, it's in the Greek, unless, of course, you didn't vote for the guy and you think that guy's destroying our nation. Okay. That, that's in the footnote. Um, I'm sure the, uh, the King James has it in there, so you, so you know it's divine. Um, because, you know, whenever Paul wrote this, Nero was king. And you talk about a man of righteousness. When he turned those Christians into living human candles and they slowly died to light his garden at night, I did. The, the church just praised him. Got on CNN and talked about what a godly man he was. That's why they were praying for Nero. He was just an awesome guy. No. 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 You, you pray for guys you, even if you think that they are destroying the country. Pray for them. Intercede for them. Uh, kings and all who are in high positions. That means the people they... The non-elected leaders in their cabinet who make all the decisions. You pray for them too. Uh, why? We may live a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified. And It's funny, isn't it? We want the peaceful and, and quiet life, but we, we skip this part about being godly and dignified. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, it's odd what we skip in the Bible. This is good. It is pleasing the sight of God our Savior. Intercede. So... Real quickly, what are the basic parts of a prayer? What I did was I took the Lord's Prayer, which is a model prayer, um, and it has all of these parts. This is not new. You can Google this, and you can get all of these. You can get them in acronyms uh, if you want to. Uh, one acronym I found didn't have all of them, and I couldn't find a word. Um, so just let's just roll with it. The first one is adoration. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right? That is. That is. Adoration. Here, here, the fact that I am able to speak to God, like Abraham, but I am just but dust and ashes. Our priority should be the adoration and praise and glory of God. That is your priority in prayer. It is not to get, it is to give. To, to give glory to him who is worthy of it. Right? Thanksgiving, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? We, we, we are to be thankful for all that the Lord gives us. Um, and the things that God hasn't given us. Isn't that an old country song? I thank God for unanswered prayer. Who is that? That's Randy Travis or Garth yes. Brooks? Yeah. Garth Brooks? Yeah, there you go. See there? I mean, if you can re reference good country music, right, and not this bro country stuff. Since when did country bros go to beaches and play volleyball? What has happened to country music? Sorry. Supplication. Give us this day our daily bread. Remember, this is a culture where bread was their dot, and you didn't always have it. Um, confession, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. That's very clear there, right? Uh, by the way, this is a model prayer rather than the Lord's Prayer because Jesus didn't need to pray for forgiveness. So if you see it more as the disciples' prayer or the model prayer. Uh, finally, intercession, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, from evil. Right? Notice there, it's not... Don't lead me into temptation. That's it too. But don't lead us into temptation. It's, it's the praying on behalf of someone else. To intercede on, on behalf of someone else is, um, is, is, is a Christian's responsibility. Right? And most of these terms are found right there in 1 Timothy 2. Right there from the Bible. Right? You don't have to be creative to figure this out. Um, whenever I was uh, working at the store... Uh, in high school, I read a book on prayer because I, th I thought I've never studied prayer. 
little did I know, it was right there in the Bible. It was very clear, right? There's, there's no secret to it. Finally, and, and we got to get out of here, uh, Christ intercedes on our behalf. Here you go, Danny. Here's a reference to Hebrews. Uh, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus is true and better priests. Remember our study of Melchizedek. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Boy, that, that, that's worth meditating on, isn't it? Save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through Christ. Since he always lives, there's a reference to the resurrection, to do what? To make intercession for us. There is a man who is divine, seated at the right hand throne of the Father, who is your Savior, who intercedes on your behalf. That should get you through about any bad day, I think. That's good news. And what does a priest do when he intercedes? He intercedes to cleanse them of their sin. That's what our high priest does. That's what Abraham does here. So interceding is a vital part of our ministry as a church, as a people, and as Christians. And don't underestimate the power of intercessory prayer. Anything here you want to add? Daniel, you got anything? All right, we start Solomon and Gomorrah. And that should be fun. All right, how about we come up here and pray?